and welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm John Tanza in Washington on this live broadcast from Studio 14. Here are some of the top stories making news across South Sudan and Sudan this month, this Monday, February 27, 2023. South Sudanese leaders are urging their citizens to work for peace. You should not be afraid of peace. We need to start reconciliation in it. Peace is a step toward reconciliation. And South Sudan prepares for a federal system of governance. The first thing to be considered is the power sharing arrangement. Uh, what is the power sharing scheme between the three levels of government? We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. South Sudan's President Salva Kiir and First Vice President Riyak Machar say the time for war is over and urge all South Sudanese to forgive one another and work towards peace. Manyang David Mayar reports for VOA from Juba. Speaking on Saturday in Juba, at an event organized by the Shulu community to thank him for saving the life of their king during deadly fighting last year in Upper Nile State, President Kiir acknowledged Many South Sudanese are still bitter over violence carried out in the past, but urged all citizens to collectively and individually work for peace. I know this is easier to say, but it is difficult to be done because those who have experienced losses through violence can be reluctant peacemakers. This is because at times the spirit of revenge overtakes the desire of, for peace. And in such a situation, to be a peacemaker requires immense courage. Addressing thousands of internally displaced persons at an IDP camp in Juba on Sunday, First Vice President Riyak Machar also said the time for war is over and urged the IDPs to put aside their differences and take advantage of the prevailing peace to forgive one another. You should not be afraid of peace. We need to start reconciliation in it. Peace is a step toward reconciliation. Again, reconciliation cannot be done by people who did not fight. It is done by the people who fought and agree for a way forward. Reconciliation is difficult. I can see you are still bitter in your hearts, but for a country to move forward, we have to leave these things behind. In December 2013 and again in July 2016, fighting broke out between soldiers loyal to Kir and his deputy Machar in Juba. Hundreds of people were killed. The violence forced thousands to flee their homes and see safety at UN-run protection of civilian sites in Juba and other parts of the country. In August 2018, President Kir, Machar and other political leaders signed a revitalized peace deal which ended the civil war and reinstated Machar as first vice president in a reconstituted transitional government of national unity. Machar told IDPs that although many bad things happened during the five-year-long war, they should let go of the past and work for peace. Peace has come. We should reconcile with each other 
and unite together so that we can start a new life. Ten years in POC, life is not good. And if we see you staying there, we all don't feel good. We all don't feel good. That's why we want to see you have opportunities like others. If you are a business person, go and start a business. If you have been engaged in farming, go and farm. We don't want to see this difficult life in POC to continue. Many IDPs have said they cannot go back because their homes have been occupied by others. Some widows whose husbands were killed during the fighting say they have no savings or property to restart their lives. Speaking at the same event as President Kir, Congo Dak Padiet, King of the Sholo Kingdom in Upper Nile State, who was displaced from his palace in Fashoda after recent deadly fighting there, also called on South Sudanese to embrace peace. We all need peace. When there is no peace, it means you are not a person. It is either you die, or your children will die, or your wife will die. But why? If there is a way to pray to God, like for Kem, for peace, to be here in South Sudan, don't we have a role to play? We should help in restoring peace. King Doug says the search for peace is a collective responsibility of all South Sudanese, not just the country's leaders. For VOA News, Amanyang David Mayor in Juba. Still in Juba, some lawmakers in South Sudan's Transitional National Legislative Assembly are welcoming a move to adopt a federal system of governance in South Sudan. Abraham Biar Deng Rit, a lawmaker representing Ball County in the Assembly, says federalism promotes political participation and helps to avoid conflict. For VOA News, Deng Deng reports from Ball. Kelemen Pilimon Baime, the Undersecretary in the Ministry of Federal Affairs, confirmed earlier today that an extraordinary Council of Ministers meeting shared by President Salva Kiir passed a federal policy document and the Strategic Plan 2023-2025 of the Federal Affairs Ministry. Baime did not comment further because he was feeling unwell. National MP Richard K. Mula, who represents Mundri County of Western Equatorial State, says the federalist system of governance has been a long-time demand of the people. He says officials should ensure that the new constitution-making process focuses on federalism. The first thing to be considered is the power-sharing arrangement. Uh, what is the power-sharing scheme between the three levels of government, the national or federal government, the state governments, as well as the local government, which are the counties. These three levels of government must have adequate powers to develop the country and provide services for the people in the respective areas they are found in. Mula says federalism will promote political participation among all South Sudanese and help prevent conflict because political power will not be centralized. Federalism will benefit people in many ways. In the first place, to give people authority, they will be able to participate in the government of their countries. They will be able to vote their leaders. They will be able to hold their leaders accountable. They will be able to uh, work in harmony and unite in, you know, in diversity. Because we are a country with many cultures and ethnicities and all this will be at these problems 
will be addressed by a federal arrangement of the country. We will definitely maintain three levels of government with various states in the country. Another national member of parliament, Abraham Biar Dengrit, who represents Jonglei State's Bor County, says adequate allocation of financial resources must be considered in the new constitution to bring development and services to the people. The very intention of federalism is to enhance, is to transfer the services to the people. And that is the concept of the SPLM, take the town to the village. It is, uh, it is uh, in other words, is a federalism in a different way. And, uh, and what type of federalism do we want? That also have to be debated. So what type of federalism do we want? Because the federalism may not be federalism without resources. You have to also take resources in order to be useful and meaningful. But when you are not giving resources to the state, then uh, it becomes just a slogan and not a political slogan and not a, not a serious uh, yeah, implementation of transferring services to the people. The federal policy is a guiding tool for federal system of governance, which South Sudan is expected to adapt during the constitution-making process. The policy calls for the dissolution of administrative powers, political organizations and arrangement within government, and more equitable resource distribution. For VOA News, I am Deng Gaideng in Bor. From Bor, we move to Khartoum, where political analysts in Sudan say military leader Abdel Fattah al-Burhan is at odds with his deputy, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, who heads the paramilitary group Rapid Support Forces. The analysts say in recent months there has been disagreement between the top military commanders over the reintegration of the Rapid Support Forces. For VOA News, Michael Atit reports from Khartoum. Hundreds of Rapid Support Forces troops were seen arriving in Khartoum over the weekend on land cruisers' pickups. Their commander, Mohammed Hamdan Dogolo, is expected to return this week from the United Arab Emirates. The presence of armed forces in the streets of the capital sparked fear among citizens in the Sudanese capital, Khartoum. Top military leaders reiterated their call in recent weeks to integrate the Rapid Support Forces into the regular army. This follows reports that Al-Burhan and other top military leaders are unhappy with Dagalo's recent statements in which he said he was willing to reintegrate his forces into one unified army as is stipulated in the Juba Peace Agreement. Addressing hundreds of RSF forces in Khartoum, Abdurrahim Hamdan Dagalo, deputy commander of RSF, denied there would be confrontation between the paramilitary group and Sudan's armed forces. General Dagalo said the RSF will continue to stand with pro-democracy groups that have been demanding political change in Sudan for years. We will never change our positions and we will not retreat from them. We support the idea of one army with reform. This is a pledge we have made to Sudanese people and we will not break it. Addressing hundreds of River Nile state citizens over the weekend, General Yasser Alata, a member of the Sovereign Council, repeated call to reintegrate the RSF and other armed groups into one army for smooth transition to civilian-led government. There is no modern, respected and democratic state that will prosper with two armies. For us, 
to establish a modern state, there must be one national, unified, independent, and strong army placed under democratic political authority. He's speaking to this program earlier today, Sudanese security analyst Musa Muhammad Abdullah said over the past few months it has become clear that Al-Burhan and his deputy have been at loggerheads over the political situation. Abdullah said any escalation between the RSF and the army that leads to confrontation could jeopardize ongoing initiative for a peaceful political settlement in the country. This is a political disagreement and it should end politically. But at the same time, if it continues for long, it may affect the time frame of the political framework agreement, which has been stipulated clearly. The RSF should be reintegrated into Sudan Armed Forces, but we are yet to see when the reintegration process will begin. Sudan's top military leaders staged a coup against the transitional government led by former Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok, citing division among civilian political forces. Dagal was named deputy head of Sudan's Sovereign Council immediately following the 2021 military coup. Michael Latid, for VOA News, Khartoum. You are tuned to South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Coming up, Sudan's economy experiences shocks. Find out more after this break. South Sudan in Focus is now on WhatsApp. Send us a message on plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. Tell us what's happening in your area or give us your feedback on the stories you hear on South Sudan in Focus. We look forward to hearing from you on WhatsApp. That number again, plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. A new report by a Sudan Transparency and Policy Tracker says there's an urgent need for a political solution to Sudan's worsening economic situation. The report says the October 2021 military takeover had had impact on Sudanese economy and that a new civilian-led government, once established, will have to carry out economic reforms and address many challenges facing Sudan's economy, political and security situation. Suleiman Boldo is the director of the group. He discussed with Nabil Biagio their new project entitled Political Path for Salvaging the Sudanese Economy. We were alarmed at the think tank about the degradation of the national economy, which appears at a standstill due to stagnation, due to high cost of living that is making life very difficult for the population. Another result of uh, high government taxes and fees that are, uh, you know, being increased under the regime uh, of the coup d'état uh, of 21st of October 2021, which prevailed until today. The paper is prepared with the perspective that there is a political process that might lead to a new civilian uh, executive and whose top priority should definitely be addressing the deteriorating security addressing the deteriorating national economy, 
and restoring the rule of law in the country, it will be a very challenging task. In the paper, you talk about the need for a political solution to Sudan's economic crisis. Uh, there is a process currently going on to reach a consensus on a civilian authority in Sudan with the army promising to exit power. Uh, what do you make of this political process that's underway and what needs to be done further? The political process, of course, occurred because the military who staged this coup in 2021, October, didn't have a plan on addressing the economic wars of the country or for restoring a law and order or the, the legitimacy of the state and its control over its own resources. That is why we thought that the ongoing political process in which the military already undertook in a framework uh, agreement yet to be finalized in a final agreement, they undertook to take themselves out of the political uh, life and uh, any role in, 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 in running the day-to-day -day politics of the country. Your report describes in detail the impact of the October military coup on Sudan's economy and calls it catastrophic. Can you highlight uh, the main consequences of the coup uh, to the Sudanese economy? The Sudan Transparency and Policy Tracker expert researchers have established that Sudan has lost some 4.6 billion in foreign aid as a direct result of the October 25th, 2021 uh, coup d'etat. And this includes nearly 2.6 billion from the World Bank meant for projects in agriculture, irrigation, energy, and health, as well as about 580 million allocated by foreign donors for the Sudan Family Support Program. So that's, that's a very onerous uh, cost. On top of that, in June 2022, the Paris Club uh, of Major Creditors uh, Countries uh, in Sudan, who, who among them uh, have a high percentage of Sudan foreign debt, also announced that the, you know, they, they were uh, suspending the debt in reaction to the coup d'etat. Uh, now, the economy, economic reform program that was launched under the previous civilian government, that these reforms were, of course, totally derailed. And uh, therefore, all the commitments, all the reforms that were uh, agreed to with the international financial institutions uh, basically were uh, thrown off track out of the end of last year, 2022. That's Suleiman Baldo, director of Sudan Transparency and Policy Tracker. He spoke with Nabil Biagio from the Sudanese capital Khartoum last week. U.S. First Lady Jill Biden has concluded her visit to Africa. Political analyst Paul Matibe has been closely following the trip. Recaps for us the First Lady's two-nation tour. So, as you may recall, she was invited by the First Lady, Madame Monica Gango, uh, the First Lady of the Republic of Namibia. So, on one thing that she did do while she was in Namibia is on February 24th, last Friday, uh, at the Namibia University of Science and Technology in Windhoek, Namibia, um, she delivered some remarks. Her speech was focused on democracy. She reiterated that, quote, you are the keepers of democracy. She called on the first generation of Namibians to pick up the mantle from their ancestors. And she said to, quote, to defend and protect and to grow their democracy. Uh, she wanted them, uh, she was calling and urging them to build on the foundation of the 
democracy, and she's lifting up those voices that have gone unheard, particularly women and girls, people living on the margins of society, or those vulnerable to abuse. And, and how was she intending for them to do that? She told them, she said, quote, by exercising our right to disagree and dissent, speaking up when we see injustice, and supporting leaders who listen to our concerns, and becoming those leaders when we hear the call. Um, she referred to one young man that she met there uh, named Moses. He's a young man aged 17. And one word about what he, uh, that young boy uh, told her kind of had some rapport with her, and that word is potential, that there is potential in Namibia, that there is potential. This visit by the First Lady echoes what her husband had been saying at the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit. You know, this visit is one thing that the Biden-Harris administration has been reiterating. They want to show that her husband, the President Joseph Biden, is following through on the promises that he made to African leaders, that he was going to be sending senior, high-ranking officials from his administration to visit Namibia. And as we have seen, uh, Secretary Yellen had been there in January, uh, the permanent representative to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenford, had been, and now we've seen the First Lady. There's more to come, at least two more very high-ranking individuals from the executive branch, and that is going to be the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, as well as Vice President Kamala Harris, is also intended to come to Africa before the president himself visits the continent. Then she moves over to Kenya, and some areas of the Horn of Africa have endured five consecutive failed rainy seasons, and she actually uh, visited drought-affected communities in Kenya and appealed for wealthy nations to give more as the Horn of Africa suffers its driest conditions in decades. Could you expound on that? Uh, absolutely. So in Kenya, uh, her counterpart, which is the First Lady of the Republic of Kenya, uh, Mrs. Rachel Ruto was 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 key to that to this visit, right? Uh, this was not the first lady's first visit to Kenya. In fact, this was her third visit to Kenya. Uh, one thing that she did say uh, in her speech, I just want to mention, um, is I'll just quote: She said, "We cannot be the only ones. We have to have our countries join us. Other countries join us in this global effort to help these people of the region." Uh, and, and this was um, President uh, Dr. Biden speaking at a relief point in Kajiado, uh, which is a by county of the south of Nairobi. And so. Um, you are quite right uh, in what you have just mentioned there about, you know, the very difficult situation right now in the Horn of Africa and East Africa, right? So um, she did visit um, this area because she wanted to appeal to these other wealthy countries that the United States cannot do it alone. That's political analyst Pearl Matibe on the U.S. First Lady Jill Biden's tour of Africa. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. It's been four years since the April 2019 ousting of then-Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir, two since a short-lived power-sharing agreement between two unlikely political entities and a subsequent military takeover. And things are finally beginning to look up in Sudan. One of the first signs of positive movement was the beginning last April of the trial of Ali Muhammad Ali Abdal Rahman, better known as Ali Kushab. 
Ali Kushayb is alleged to have committed crimes against humanity and war crimes as a senior leader of the Janjaweed, a Sudanese government-aligned militia that used extreme brutality to help put down an uprising in Sudan's Darfur province. This is a crucial moment for Sudan's future, said Mark Simonoff, a legal advisor for the U.S. delegation to the United Nations. This is a landmark case. The first trial against any senior leader for atrocities committed by the Omar al-Bashir regime and government-supported forces in Darfur, and more importantly, the first real opportunity for justice that victims of Darfur have had. Another sign of positive movement is the December 5th signing of the Framework Political Agreement. This accord between military rulers and civilian power is an essential first step towards re-establishing Sudan's democratic transition, which began with the 2019 overthrow of the al-Bashir regime, but came to a halt with the military takeover of the government in October 2021. This agreement and the recent launch of Phase 2 dialogues on outstanding issues are promising steps towards establishment of a final agreement to form a civilian government. The fact that these negotiations have happened at all is a testament to the Sudanese women, men, and youth who have persistently and courageously taken to the streets to demand their rights and to call for civilian rule, despite facing violence at the hands of Sudanese security forces. Still, some of the hardest challenges lie ahead, as the parties began to negotiate some of the issues in these Phase 2 dialogues. This includes the Juba Peace Agreement, which stipulates that Sudan will be constructed as a federation, as well as the questions of transitional justice and security sector reform. Over the next few months, said Mr. Simonoff, we will continue to stand with the Sudanese people as they work to find common ground on how transitional justice, including accountability for the violence in many decades of conflict, can advance truth, justice, reconciliation, and healing. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. That's all we prepared for you this Monday. We now leave you with Teledi Musica with the song My Kungo Choma means I'm alone. I'm John Tanza in Washington on this live broadcast from Studio 14. Don't forget to visit voaafrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. If you miss this program, go to www.voaafrica.com forward slash South Sudan. Thanks for taking time to be with us. Remember to join us tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Mama, my dear language, Mama, Sunny Kangubani, Mama.
Anakani bara, 